Hey, Travelers, Nitsan Moser here, the Traveling Investor, and welcome to another awesome show of the Traveling Investor Live Q&A, where you get to ask my guests live questions about real estate, setting goals, mastering your mind, body, and wallet, and all that good jazz. And well, I'm living up to my name, the Traveling Investor, because if you can see behind me, I am in Northwest Arkansas right now, been here for the last two weeks. Uh, I should be going home tomorrow back to Florida, but as we see, the weather may not allow it. I just bought a brand new property here. We're going to do a short-term rental. And, you know, that's what I love about real estate. Any type of real estate is that you can do it from anywhere in the world as long as you've got your laptop, your phone, and you've got a good team of boots on the ground and a good back office and just a great team to support you in everything that you do. And, you know... there's a great saying or, or there's a great piece of advice. It says, you know, we're, it doesn't matter if you were born poor, dying poor, or I'm, I'm sorry, that being born poor is not your fault, but dying poor is. And the reason why we say that is because during your lifetime, you have the opportunity to go out there and do anything you want with your life. And I'm here to help a billion people create a life that they can only dream of. That's right, Haggai, ABC, always be closing. That's right, my friend, always be closing. Uh, And today I have a gentleman on the show uh, who can help or who is, you know, he's part of the team that I recommend everybody have because being able to create your business that revolves around your lifestyle really it comes down to having a great plan and system together and then having an incredible team to be able to support you and business moving forward in life. And there's a great book that I, uh, I highly recommend everybody uh, read. It's called Clockwork. And I'm going to you know, butcher his name. is Mike Mikulahowski or something of that nature. And, and, and we can put it up later Um the, the exact name, but in the book, it talks about the four D's, designing, doing, delegating, and deciding. And in our business, in the beginning of any business, we're, we're the ones, you know, we're the entrepreneurs, we're the solopreneurs, we're the one that is building the dream in the beginning. And in the beginning, we're the ones that are doing all of the doing, doing all of the deciding. We're delegating to ourselves. Right. And we're making all the decisions to, on, on our own. But my guest today, um, he comes from a background that, you know what, he's looked, he's bounced from role to role, employer to employer, looking for his perfect fit. But he realized that perfect doesn't exist, um, but creating his own path. And that's what we're talking about is creating your path and then improving on it day to day. So my guest, Mike Solitro, uh, he provides solutions built for you. He's a real estate attorney. He's a broker associate, meaning that he has his broker's license, but he's not, he doesn't have his own brokerage company. He decides to continue to work under another broker but while having his broker's license. And he's also the founder of Accomplished RE. And for more than a decade, Mike has leveraged dispute resolution practices and lean principles to solve complex real estate problems, enhance collaboration, and has played the key role in countless transactions. So let's see 
what Mike has to say about building a team and about doing real estate correctly. So let's, uh, without further ado, let's bring in Mike Salicho. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that introduction. It's very kind. Ah, Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here in a blizzard. Where are you at? I'm in Cape Cod on Massachusetts. We had our blizzard about a week ago. And uh, as we joked about before the show that uh, we have about 14 inches left. So um, we, we had quite a, uh, quite a weekend last week. <laughs> so you guys sent that wave of snow down to me, right? Not, a, not, not purposely, but it seems that you're in the middle of it now. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's great. So Tell us, Mike. So you're you're currently a real estate attorney and an associate broker, correct? I am, yes. And uh, How I long do have you run been doing uh, real estate. Uh, being a real estate attorney, I've been in a real estate attorney for a little over ten years now. Great. And 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 what did you do before that? Uh, I worked in real estate in my very first role. I was in New York City. I worked at a um, company who did trend and forecasting reporting for investors and property owners. And that's kind of where I first was exposed to real estate. And that's where I kind of fell in love with it and realized I didn't know anything about it. So if I was going to talk to these people, I needed to uh, teach myself what was going on and provide information, value to them. So they would in turn talk to me. So we'd get the uh, the forecasting and the reporting that they would in turn buy from our company. So that that's, I was quickly, or I should say that's briefly where I uh, fell in love with real estate. That's awesome. And, and, and was that your transition from there into law? Yeah, I, uh, I went from that role and kind of research and, you know, again, liking what real estate could offer and really understanding that it means a lot of different things to different people as, as you know, we've got a primary residence where you live, you've got investment tools of how you can make money and there's residential, there's commercial, there's dust, there's all different uh, types of property and ways that it impacts people's lives. So from there, I went to uh, move back to the Boston market, worked in a uh, leasing capacity, a lot of apartment rentals. And I saw the people doing the cool stuff were attorneys or negotiating contracts. I, was like, I can do that, but without, uh, having that JD being an attorney, it was kind of locked out of those rooms. So found my way to law school and uh, that's how I became a real estate attorney. Oh, that's great. And uh, when you and now when you say real estate attorney, there is that's a huge umbrella. Of, you know, it's a big umbrella, right? It's a big topic. Um, is there a niche of real estate that you that you work in? Yeah, transactional is where I spend most of my time. So helping, and even on the residential side, I help people close on homes, uh, either on the sell or the buy side. So on the buy side, we're usually working with the bank or the lender. On the sell side, um, you know, we're helping people just uh, get their purchase and sale, and the uh, the closing go smoothly. Right. So uh, let's let's talk uh, on the buy side, right? For buyers, right? Today it's it's a crazy market out there, right? It's crazy what's going on. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of properties coming on the market for even less than a day and they already have contracts on them, right? Properties are flying off the market. They're going for above asking price, right? Appraised value may not even reach that level, but people are still willing to pay difference in cash. What are you seeing out there? What's what's your kind of crystal ball showing you? Yeah, we're seeing all of that and have seen that over the last 18 months or so. As far as the crystal ball, I think it's safe to say, at least I've learned over the last two years, that no one really knows for sure or certain what's coming next. Uh, Interest rates have started to tick up, so that may um, reduce some of the buying power of 
uh, the limited buyers, or I should say the amount of buyers that are on the market for limited listings, uh, because that's what we've seen, uh, not, not a plentiful amount to match what the buyers are looking for. So those properties, as you reference, are going off the market within a day, uh, over asking price and not appraising for what they're listed for. I think you will see more of that. But in my market specifically, we've got a lot of second homes, some investment properties, a lot of vacation, uh, short-term rentals. So most of our listings are people who have, if, they, if you've wanted to sell, they've probably already done it or put their home on the market. So we're seeing homes come back on the market, maybe at a reduced price or uh, some stubborn sellers looking to maximize their profit and still at above uh, what the market is telling them their property is worth. So they may have been relisted or trying their luck a second, a third time. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that as well. And, and a lot of the, um, and a lot of the multifamily properties that we're doing that as well, it's the same thing. Uh, there's low inventory. As properties come on the market, people are putting non-refundable earnest money deposit of up to a million, $2 million day one so that they can win the contract. And it's just, it's just incredible. The, the greed for, you know, better for, for good or worse, right? The greed that's happening in the market today. Right. What do you see some of the pitfalls in that? Well, I mean, just as you describe that scenario, there are plenty of pitfalls to go around from losing your earnest money to buying a property that you have not done the proper due diligence on. So you might win the contract, win the deal, and then you might have bought yourself a lawsuit, bought yourself a headache or worse bought yourself a property that you didn't even uh, weren't setting out to buy. Um, when working with buyers or investors or anybody who kind of fits that category, it's important to understand that what you're looking for still should trump what's available. So if something doesn't meet your needs, but the scarce or the we need to do this mindset can get you into trouble down the line. If, if we don't do this now, then what? So there's a a acronym, BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement that uh, law students will learn. But it's really helpful in real estate is, is if I don't do this, what can I do with my money? What can I do with what I'm looking to do instead? So understanding there are alternatives and being able to step away from deals that don't match your goals or what you're looking to do ultimately. Right. No, absolutely. That's 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 sage advice. And uh, everybody should definitely take that. Right. Don't buy just for the sake of buying. Right. And uh, as uh, one of our listeners, Chagai, says, low inventory, high demands. We have the same cases here in Montreal. Yeah, it's, you know, Canada, the U.S., it's all around. And that's, you know, that 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 same craziness that's going on. And, and you know, a lot of times with multifamily and also with, with residential, you're absolutely correct. We see a lot of people going in and their emotions are getting the best of them. Oh my God, what are we going to buy? We have to buy something. What are we going to, we can't miss out. We can't miss out, right? That, that FOMO, the fear of missing out makes people, you know, jump at, at product, right? Real estate and buy stuff that they don't want. And they say, oh, you know, we could overlook that right now. You know, we can take care of that. Don't worry about it. Um, the expenses are high, but we can we can work that. We can lower the expenses, right? And making excuses just to be able to get into a deal, and that's when problems start to happen. Like you said, you can buy yourself a lawsuit. You can you know you can overlook things because you're in a hurry to close. So that's that's some that's some great sage advice. Um, what 
you know, what should people that are looking to get into the real estate world, into residential and, and whatnot, either as a buyer or an investor, what are some of the things that they should be looking for in today's market that, you know, could cause them to, to fault and to waver? Yeah, we uh, whenever I'm working with a buyer who's either newer to the market or is not under pressure to make that immediate deal, we'll kind of take a step back and we'll look at three categories or three starting points, uh, price, location, and condition. And underneath all those, there's a plethora of categories or things to kind of check off for each location or each potential deal but to understand how those three areas are related to each other and to kind of rank what's most important, where you've got some wiggle room, where you've got some flexibility, and then ultimately what you're looking to do. Um, regardless of your price point, 200,000, 2 million, 10 million, you are going to make some compromises in your uh, a purchase. There's no perfect, perfect home when it comes to looking at those three categories. So oftentimes it's the price and location what we look at first is like this may not be the exact neighborhood you are looking for, but at this price point, if you're looking to uh, have that multifamily property, you can bring more desirable uh, rentals in at a higher weekly, monthly rate. So that might work. Or this is the neighborhood, but the home is a little bit older than you were looking for. So you start pulling in that condition, which features it has, uh, what you'll be offering to either uh, your residents or, or to renters. So understanding the interplay between those three and then where you are in the market as far as what is your leverage, what you need to do uh, to make that offer attractive or to maybe scoop up a property that's been sitting on the market because it has been uh, undervalued by uh, other buyers. Awesome. Awesome. Now, let me ask you this. Um, when people, when they're, when, when going to closing on a residential property, what, you know, people in Florida, for example, it's a title state, right? So you don't need an attorney to do a closing. You can have a title company go out and do the closings for you. What, what are some of the questions that a buyer should ask a title company or an attorney that's handling their closings um, to make sure that, you know, they're, they're getting a property and, and, it's, and it's clean and it's kosher and they're not going to get into any problems once they close? Yeah, that's a good question. Massachusetts is an attorney state and one of the few left. And one of the things that I like to talk about with either my clients on the brokerage side or when I'm on the uh, buyer side at the closing table as in the attorney role is to understand the distinction between a buyer's attorney and a lender's attorney. A lot of times the lender and the buyer's interest will match up. But if it is the lender who is kind of contracted with myself or another real estate attorney that the buyer should understand uh, that there are some differences. So one easier one to think about is the lending attorney wants to make sure that there is clean title, that the, what the bank is going to have you know, their mortgage on, it is good, there's going to be no ownership issues, uh, the property's in good condition, that the um, inspection that took place, if it did in this time, uh, they're satisfied with the condition of the property. Uh, but sometimes the buyers might have um, a, an interest in using my example that, you know, the title looks good, the condition of the property is good, but going back to the uh, location, it's, they're not sure of the location of, of where the property is. So the, the 
bank and the lender's attorney is, is okay moving forward because it, it meets those conditions. But for a buyer's attorney, is there anything built into the contract that if something else were to come on, there'd be a way to get out of, of the uh, of, of where you are and to get a return in your money? Or if there is other issues with the property that if it's part of an HOA that you have thought that you could rent it for X amount of weeks, again, the bank may not be as interested in that. But if you've got a buyer's attorney, they can protect you from those things that you may not find out uh, during the quick diligence period up front. So just understanding that just because there's an attorney that's working with you, that is it a lender's attorney, buyer's attorney, they're functioning as both. How is that? How does that work? Right. Yeah, that's 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 great advice. You know, you always want to have an out for for any reason and whatnot. And um, yeah, having an attorney is definitely something that, um, you know, it's not an I don't look at it as an expense. I look at it as, you know, what is my ROI on that investment, right? Having having an incredible attorney on your team is an investment. There's an ROI on it. It's not an expense, right? An expense is something that doesn't have a, a return on it, but an investment, like investing in a in a good attorney that understands the rules, that has your back, um, does have a return on investment, right? That return on investment can be buying a good property and having no issues, staying out of a bad property, keeping you out of a bad property, Right. So there is a ROI on having a good attorney on your team um, when. Let's talk about brokers for a second, right, because um, I know when when I'm looking for a property, especially residential, it's more so even on the I guess on the on the commercial side as well. Uh, sometimes you'll have a broker that says I'm representing the seller, but I can still represent you. Right. A lot of times people are like, well, wait a minute, how, how can that happen? If I tell you something, you're going to then run and tell the seller. If the seller tells you something, you're going to run and tell me. So where is confidentiality? Where is client privilege? How does that all play out? Sure. I, I will take this opportunity to say that although I'm an attorney, I am not providing specific legal advice today. So if you do have a specific legal question, please consult a local attorney. But this example is one that I am blown away by that in 2022 still happens. And in my current market, uh, Cape Cod, it happens all of the time. And as you said, privacy, confidentiality, how can you maintain those things? And the direct answer is you really can't. That if you are the listing agent, the listing realtor, and a buyer comes to you unrepresented and you present to them that you can represent both parties, in essence, you're representing no one. Because according to the to the Realtor rules, according to state law here, you've got to step back and you merely become a facilitator in this transaction. You no longer can represent both parties because on its face, it just sounds ridiculous. And the example I like to give as an attorney, you imagine in a courtroom of a criminal case, uh, state gets up and says, we're going to present our case. And by the end, we're going to tell you why Mr. Smith committed A, B and C and he should go to jail. You then walk back to the table, same attorney walks to the other table, says, I'm here to tell you why Mr. Smith is not guilty of X, Y, and Z. You would never have the same attorney representing both sides in that case. But here, sure, I, I, we can represent buyer and seller. And it, it blow, I, I, I've, I have never done it. I will never do it. And I recommend, even though you're looking at double the commission, it is never worth it for uh, a realtor, a resident, uh, real estate agent because there's just too many things that can and will go wrong ultimately. Right. So when when a broker approaches or when you when someone approaches a listing agent and says, hey, I'm not represented. And the listing agent says, great, I'll represent you. 
what would they, how would they, how should the buyer proceed with that? Is there a form that they can ask the broker to fill out the agent? Is there, you know, can they say, Hey, you know what? Thank you. But no, thank you. I don't, you know, you're, you're the listing agent. You're going to represent. And on top, do I need an agent, a buyer's agent to work with me in this closing? Yeah. So that, that comes down to a lot of ethical questions and, Ultimately, I mean, there is forms that a listing agent will require the buyer to sign in that instance that will outline what the dual agency will look like. But as, as I kind of mentioned, that when you're a dual agent, you're really representing nobody. A buyer should know, and this goes back to due diligence and having, as you mentioned right up front, having that strong team in place before you're even looking at properties. Uh, essentially, the buyer's agent's commission is coming out of the purchase price. So you're not adding any additional dollars to most deals to have representation in a deal. So being represented by a realtor or by an agent in a deal residential wise, you're paying for that out of the purchase price anyway. So when the seller or listing agent is telling you, we can represent you, it's okay that you don't have someone. Really what they're doing is saying, I would like to keep the commission all for myself as opposed to splitting with another broker. You're not paying any more as a buyer in most instances, the way that the commission structure is generally set up to have that representation. So it really uh, benefits any buyer to have their own representation, even if it's an agent from the same firm as the listing or selling broker, uh, even if it's somebody that is recommended by the selling broker, there's no harm in having your own agent or at least having taking a step back and asking for uh, your own representation. If the listing agent were to say no, uh, that's even more of a red flag, I would think. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, when when you're going towards the closing, right, or when you sign a contract, right, you put a, you, you sign the PSA, everything, you put your money into the escrow account and whatnot, who's who's the responsible party for doing all of the lien searches, title, permits, things of that nature? And the reason why I'm asking is because I bought a house in Florida where I live many, many moons ago. Apparently, the title company, and again, it's Florida's a title state, right? So we let the title company do all that. They're supposed to do the title search, open permits, any violations, things of that nature. I close on the house. Many, many years later, the city sends me a notice saying, hey, the driveway that you put in is not to code. And I said, well, hey, wait a minute. I didn't put that driveway in. The old guy did. The old seller did. It's not me. Well, yeah, well, you have this and this has been open and had this and, and, and there's a whole thing now. Who's responsible for doing all those searches? And then if those searches aren't are done, but aren't done well, and they come back to you several years later, what are the remedies that an owner can have if they bought something and, you know, that they're having issues later on? Yeah, that's a great question and a really good uh, example of how I mentioned before the difference between an illegal in an attorney state like Massachusetts, where a buyer uh, and a lender's attorney may have different interests. You hiring a buyer's attorney, they would look into those things because uh, that would be of interest to the buyer beyond that closing date. Whereas uh, it may not, in the example you give, it may not be something that's caught in your title search, in your permit search. So in Massachusetts, an attorney state. The buyer, buyer's counsel, lender, uh, lender's attorney, they're the ones who are who's going to perform that title search, make sure that what you're buying is what uh, the seller has to sell. Um, 
we use quitclaim deeds here because of the history of Massachusetts going back so far. So no real guarantee deeds, but um, you know, you can use the example that you gave an attorney for the bank, for the buyer will be responsible for the title search. As far as remedies, a lot of the documents you see at a closing is going to say that we've done our best due diligence and we believe what you're purchasing is uh, in line with what our research is and what it shows. Uh, and ultimately it will be the uh, interest or the, uh, the, the buyer will be the one that will have to deal with any conflict that may come down the line. And this is where title insurance comes in uh, for title issues. But for the driveway issue, it's going to be at best likely an uphill battle because you've probably signed multiple documents at closing that say, we understand everyone has done their best to perform the best they can. Right. But if somebody didn't or something was missed or something was overlooked, it's me, the buyer, who's ultimately going to be the one holding the bag or being responsible. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so travelers. So is that what happened on the driveway? That's what happened. So now I got stuck with a $10,000 bill to drudge the whole driveway up the, 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 the sidewalk. And I, I've got to do that over again because, Hey, you know, nobody picked up on it. So now I'm stuck with that. And you mentioned something that I'd like, you know, if you could dive a little deeper into, you mentioned quit claim deed. So I know we have special warranty deed as a quick claim deed. What are the different types of deeds that people can see and what's the difference between them and which one is the best one that as a buyer I want to have? Yeah, just think about it kind of in two ways. Like I said, we have a quick claim deed here in Massachusetts. And the easiest way to think about that is me as a seller, I'm going to sell you whatever I have, my rights, I'm going to pass on to you. So that's why that title search becomes important because you want to know, all right, this property has been around for 200 years and this is the language in the deed and we're going to continue passing it on. So I'm just going to give you the rights that I have uh, without you know, any guarantees, any warranties that um, I, I actually do own this property. Whereas a warranty deed is, you are in essence guaranteeing that, yes, I am the owner. I, it is certified in a newer area where uh, you see cities popping up in, you know, Texas, Arizona, where there's only, let's say, they've been around for eight years and it's brand new property, not just a brand new home. That's the title is very easily uh, researched and it's very, um, you know, everything's online. You can say, here's the property lines. Here's exactly what I own. There's no question as to what I'm passing you. Um, you know, you might have land that was involved in lawsuits before, so it's clear as to what you own. But Massachusetts, you're going to see a quit claim deed of, as a seller, I'm I'm selling you what I own or what, according to the registry, according to the land court, what I've got. And that's what you're willing to accept, that it is not a warranty or a guarantee, but that that's the best. And that's kind of what you see in, in any state that has uh, a prolonged history where uh, deeds might have started on, on napkins, on you know pieces of paper, on kind of handshakes. So that's that's kind of the genesis and that's how that started. Right. Yeah. I noticed when I was buying a lot of short sales, a lot of foreclosures, a lot of those deeds were quit claim deeds from from the lenders and, and uh, you know, even the homeowners. Right. So I guess they're just saying, hey, you know what, we're not guaranteeing what's what what happened 10, 15, 20, 100 years ago. I'm selling you what I know. We took it over from this person and we're just going to give it to you. Is there is there a way for me as the buyer to protect myself against someone coming and saying, hey, you know what? 50 years ago, 
someone stole this land from my uncle and I want it. Yeah, that, that's a that's another great question because that's what law school books are made of. And that's, that's a good example. But kind of another issue or another point to raise there, especially with foreclosures, short sales, with a quick claim deed, especially if there was a warranty beforehand, is that uh, it's very not difficult, it, but it can be difficult, but it's a very uh, defined process as how to foreclose on a property or how to uh, perform a short sale in many states. So with the quick claim, they're saying we, in essence, we think we've done this right. This is what we're willing to sell, what we can provide you as the seller or the owner now. But if something is wrong and you don't find it now, this might be a headache for you down the line. So not only do you have to worry about that guy 50 years ago whose grandfather said the property is going to be yours in, in 45 years, but you want to make sure that the proper steps were taken during the foreclosure. And it goes back again to making sure that you have the right expertise on your team, somebody who is trained in, for, in foreclosure short sales, somebody who routinely does this, who's familiar with um, the, that market, that county, that area, uh, so they can look for or at least be on the lookout for things that don't look right or may have not been done correctly, because it's a lot easier to correct or mitigate those issues up front as opposed to 10 years later when that guy shows up and says, hey, this is my house, or uh, they, or the current owner or the previous owner saying, you were, I wasn't foreclosed on properly, and I actually still own the house, and I didn't sell it to you. Right. That's 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 when it becomes tricky. Right. That's, that's when it starts to get a very, very sticky and you got to get a lot of lawyers and, and a lot of people, um, you know, engaged to, to help that. Does title insurance protect from that? It can. Uh, in general, uh, when whenever you have a mortgage on a property, the title insurance, that, at least in Massachusetts, you're required to have title insurance on the mortgage portion of the property. So the easiest way to think about it is. You put the 20% equity cash down in the home, 80% is mortgaged. You're required for the 80% to be covered with title insurance. So if that guy shows up down the line, the mortgage portion, protect it. While it's not required or not listed as required in Massachusetts, I have a long conversation with all of my buyers that you want to have, if you're not going to buy title insurance for your equity your, or the owner's policy for the title, there should be a good reason why. Because... The first question they'll obviously say is, you know, I've spent so much money. Why do I need to have something that's not required? Or didn't somebody do a title search? Why couldn't they just do their job? But in essence, what you're protecting at is that guy showing up saying that my grandfather said that my uncle was going to give me this property when they all moved out or moved away or passed away. And that's finally happened. So I'm here. There's no stopping him from knocking on your door and proceeding with a lawsuit. So what title insurance does is it protects your equity from that portion. Because if you don't have the owner's policy, then you're, as the buyer, as the owner at that point, you're the one responsible for defending that lawsuit, regardless of how frivolous it is. But if you have title insurance, again, depending on the circumstance, not using a specific example here, you've got a, a policy that'll provide coverage for you and that'll provide counsel in that, uh, in that lawsuit. Wow, that's a lot. That's 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 great. Awesome. So I, I see your background. You've got accomplished RE consulting strategy coaching. Talk to us about that. When did you start yeah. that? What is that? And why did you start? it? Yeah, I started about four years ago. Now, uh, I spent some time in corporate America after law school and got was able to be trained systems process lean, lean six sigma stuff and love it because it is the foundation for strong businesses, good teams and best way to get more things done effectively and efficiently. And working on the legal and brokerage side of real estate 
especially in the residential, you see where deals kind of either fall apart, where handoffs go wrong, or things that could be done better as far as the client or the consumer or the end user. So for me, sitting at a closing table, talking to a buyer who is you know, almost in tears, is very uh, upset about how their transaction went because they feel they were either left astray or they didn't have the greatest experience. Then you turn around and you talk to the person that represented them in the same deal. They're like, oh, this was great. My customers, my clients are the most important to me having a good experience. It's like, how can this be? How can this be that the same person had, uh, you know, the same people in the same transaction had such a different experience? So, what Accomplished RE does is I work with real estate agents on uh, really fortifying that business model to make sure that, that the client experience is one that uh, is great, one that is keeps them constantly informed and helps the real estate agent not uh, fall into the trap of the uh, transaction or the next deal treadmill, always looking for the next deal. So that once you sign the contract, you kind of leave this client and you go to the next one because that's how you get paid. That client, although they signed the contract, they've got a lot to do before they get to the closing table. And they're generally looking for you, uh, if not take them by the hand, to at least lead uh, the transaction to that point. So being the attorney at the closing table, I saw too many times that that client getting left behind and how if you have the proper systems, the proper business operations set up on the front end, uh, you can avoid uh, leaving your clients in, in that bad position. And they'll be much more likely to do business with you and introduce you to friends and family who are going to buy uh, more property down the line, make your job easier as well. Got it. And 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 is this um, specifically to the Massachusetts, New England area, or is it, you know, information that any realtor around the country can uh, can use and tap into? Yeah, this is uh, one-on-one coaching that I've done with um, real estate agents, realtors all over the country. So not just something local. Most of my clients are in the New England and. Uh, New York area, just because that's where my network is. But uh, it is something that I've worked with nationally. Okay, great, great, great. Um, so what, you know, when when some, like like we talked about, you know, what the buyers should look for, right, when they're buying, you know, when I talk to, when you know, I'm, I coach people as well on, on, in, on the investment side, right, how to invest, what to look for when looking at the properties. And I always tell them when the first thing you do when you go to a property is you look at two things, right? What can I change and what can't I change, right? So the things that we can't change are like the, the railroad tracks, the garbage dump, the, the, the main highway that's running right behind you, the train tracks that are crossing through your living room, right? Those are the things you can't change. And if you can live with those things, then go ahead and move forward. And then there are things that you can change, right? The, the, the look of the house, the curb appeal, the, you know, the insides and, and things of that nature. So, um, you know, when when going through that with with people and with new um, with new clients, how how important is it as a realtor, as a broker to make your clients aware of these things? Right. Last thing we want as, a, as an agent is for someone to get into a property and be like, dude, you know, you didn't tell me about the garbage dump in the backyard. Yeah, I, I love the way that you position it as kind of simple change can't change because the things that you mentioned, they will never change or they will be such a large cost, such a large headache that the ROI or that the the opportunity of it is just not there. So you just can't do it. So having those things uh, in the front of the buyer's mind before they close is really important. And, and then the, the second thing that um, 
you referenced there is that what is the realtor's role or what's their job? If you have that information about the dump or you have an idea or even if you should know, you need to disclose all that information. Um, at least that's that, that's where I come from, that disclose, disclose, disclose. If you have an idea, should have an idea, or even have heard something, and maybe I should look into this further because you don't want to be picking up the phone in six, seven years, but like, hey, remember that house you sold me? Oh, by the way, you said that they would never be able to build next door, uh, but there's a house going up and no one else, no, no one is interested in, re in remedying this for me, so I'm looking at you to make this better. Right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so as a broker, you're right. You got a CYA. You got to cover your assets. You got it. You have to do that. But if you come from a perspective of I, I'm treating this client like it's my own family member, like it's somebody I want to continue to do business with. It's more than just covering, covering, covering yourself. It's I want to do the best job because I want them to, to introduce me to everybody they know, or I want them to Anytime they have a real estate question, I want to be that resource, not that guy who cashed the check and kind of forgot about them once once their deal closed or once their purchase and sale was was taken care of. Right. So I know I know we, we touched a little bit about this in the beginning, and I know you don't have a crystal ball and I don't have a crystal ball. What do you see going on in the market and where do you see it going? Right. A lot of people are, are you know, in Florida, for example, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, we still haven't hit that height of 06, 07, and 08. So we still have way more to go. And yet on the other hand, we're hearing, oh, the Fed is going to raise interest rates four times this year. And, you know, as we know, as interest rates go up, prices go down, cap rates go up, right? And, 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 and I'll tell you this, you know, as an investor, I see a lot now of what happened in 06, 07, and 08 is no doc loans. Oh, you got a heartbeat? Come, I'll give you money. Oh, I don't care how much the property cash flows, right? You got a job, I'll give you money, right? And we're seeing that kind of come back in a in a in a big way. So, what's your take on that? Yeah, the 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 thing that I always find interesting, or not always, but I find interesting, is that when the current market is compared to oh wait, it's you've got answers saying, well, we're prepared, you know, we're better positioned against what happened because A, B, and C is not happening like it happened last time. And the the interesting thing to me is that A, B, and C is probably not what's going to happen again. It's right. not what you're it's what you're not thinking of or what you don't see or what's what's happening behind you know the shady uh, alleyways, the closed doors, the things that are not supposed to be going on. What kind of insights do we have into those? Uh, but to answer your question, as far as what seems to make sense, uh, I think it is going to be even more market specific to, as to what happens next. You're going to see the people never return to their daily commute, their office, uh, and if not never, probably for a prolonged amount of time. So you're not going to see the need to live in big cities strictly for work. But there's going to be an opportunity there, especially here in the Northeast, you know, your Boston's and New York's, of people who want to, that city, that cosmopolitan lifestyle. So those markets have already, you know, bounced back and you've seen rental rates uh, match where they were and they're going to continue to rise. People want to live there. What's going to be interesting is what the kind of next tier of, of cities where um, you, you only live there because that's where your job was. What other things are attracting you to those markets? Um, where I am uh, on Cape Cod, you know, people have flocked and are going to continue to flock. But we've seen a lot of younger 
and by uh, comparison, younger people, families move here uh, full time. Whereas, uh, you know, myself with my young family, we were kind of the outliers. Like, there's not a lot of people in my age bracket that have moved here full time. But over the last two years, we've seen a large, large uh, kind of influx because it's a nice place to live. And you no longer have to get to Boston every day uh, if you need to get there every once in a while or you can work from home. So I think it's been market specific. Uh, I've rambled here, so uh, feel free to jump in. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you 100 percent. People are looking and they're saying, well, that's not going to happen again. And just like you said, you're absolutely right. But if that's not going to happen again, and we know that everything is cyclical, what goes up has got to come down, right? So what are the factors that are going to drive the economy down, right, versus what happened in 06, 07, 08, you know? And you know, I'll give you an example. Being in the multifamily industry, uh, when with the COVID and the pandemic, we had the moratorium where, hey, tenants didn't have to pay rent. And everybody's going, holy shit, are you kidding me? They're not going to pay rent? What the hell's going to happen? How are we going to get it? How are we going to, who, what? And we thought we were going to see a ton of properties come on the market and people just want to get rid of their assets. Hey, here, please take it because what am I going to do with all these people that aren't paying rent and so forth? But that is just the opposite of what happened. Mm -hmm. Cap rates compressed even more. Prices shot up. Rents went up. And it's just been a buying frenzy and there's greed happening everywhere, which for me is kind of telling me, oh, hey, hold on a minute, right? If people are coming up and, you know, for example, in Miami, right, they're buying a property that was built in 1880 or 1920 for $300,000 a unit in apartment, right, where, you know, you, you blow on the property and it could fall down because it's so old, you, you know, you got to ask yourself, well, where are we going from here, right? I could buy, I could build a brand new property for less than what I'm buying that one for. So what's going on here? So there's a lot of different aspects to this, this market appreciation and the increase that's happening that, you know what, what are we looking at here? Where is it? What's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and have and start that cycle downturning. And you know, in the commercial industry, I'm seeing, you know, we got to look at different aspects, right? So I'm looking at what are lenders, what type of loan products are Fannie and Freddie coming out with? Nobody today is putting long-term debt. We're not looking at five, seven, 10-year terms anymore. We're looking at three years with maybe a possible one-year extension in and out. I want to buy the property, renovate it, prove the upside, and then flip it because I know it's coming. There's something looming in the back, and we don't want to get caught with such an expensive property when the market tank when the market tanks because we're going to have to hold it for the next five to ten years until that mar until the cycle comes back. But I think you're also right that it's going to be very different. It's going to be very localized in the different areas. Um, but yeah, let's it's 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 fun. Let's see what happens, right? Let's see where it's gonna go. You know, like sitting on the roller coaster, and we're all going up, 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 and we're like, I can see it. 
And and that look right there is that's what kind of that was the bug that bit me about real estate, you know, 15 years ago. It's like this is, you know, something I didn't I didn't know very much about. But I, I see these people getting excited. I see these people making lucrative deals. And I see property, you know, one one apartment building. It's as as an owner, I, I'm the, this is my this is my income. As a property manager, somebody who works in the building, this is my job. As somebody who has a place to live, this is where I, so it just has this it's there's so many. Uh, different different things that real estate can provide so many different people, and I know that sounds kind of basic, but it's it really is you, you, the possibilities are really endless when you start thinking about it and looking at ways to, to it can be used and, and ultimately make money. Absolutely, and, and and what I like also about real estate is is the creativeness. You can be so creative. There's not just one way to acquire a property, or you know you can do so many different things with a property today and how to gain income from it and how to improve it and what to do. There are grants today from the government to help you renovate and put in reusable, sustainable products on your property. There's, you know, uh, what, what do they call it? Um, uh, alternative, alternative financing, right? Creative financing, lease options, doing this, doing that, all kinds of cool different ways of doing deals rather than just your, ordinary, traditional, here's my money, here's the loan, thank you, have a nice day, right? And that, and that's that's a great point too, because you see a lot of, it's not first time buyers, but or non-creative buyers, well, I'm buying a house, I need a 30 year mortgage. And it's like, well, the, op, the, the chances of you living in the house 30 years is very slim. And it is possible that's the best product for you, but it's your job as a consumer to say, "Hey, what else is available out there? What other, what other thing?" And it doesn't just stop at the mortgage; it stops with how you utilize your property. You know, people want to say, "I want to get into real estate investing," and they've got this idea that a real estate investor is this person who has hundreds of properties and you know, they're they're jet setting around the globe. It's like, well, you can turn your primary residence into an investment if you properly do the right projects, you do the right updates, you turn it into a rental at times, you have, you know, an ADU outside. So then you've got options. But, uh, you know, you just need to be the main word you said there was creative. You need to understand what options are available to you. How can you leverage your probably most valuable asset that you have to bring in income or to help you get future assets? That's right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, man. Mike, we, we're, we're running out of time. How can people get a hold of you to learn more about Accomplished RE and to, you know, work with you and get some of your services? Yeah, thank you for asking. The uh, two best places to find me, AccomplishedRE.com, and uh, I'm on LinkedIn. So uh, pretty easy there. Awesome, awesome. Well, hey, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate your knowledge and, and, and all the nuggets that you gave us. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, travelers, you know, Look at you know. Look up Mike on LinkedIn and a, an accomplishedre.com. Get some info. Build a team of awesome attorneys and people that can help you stay out of trouble, right? And do that. And if you are looking for um, a good place to place your funds and you're looking to invest passively, please look at one of our sponsors, Cornerstone Investment Partners. Uh, also, uh, one of our other sponsors is Commercial Realty Partners. If you're looking to broker your deals. Um, And you can check us on all the different podcast stations, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pocket Casts, Spotify, YouTube, Roku, Google Podcasts. We're there. Check us out. I look forward to seeing everybody next week where I will be somewhere else. And that'll be a surprise. So, Mike, thanks for being on the show. Be well, be safe, and happy hunting, everyone. Take care.